0: That's a l l b i r d s. dot com code super twenty four. Blog Talk Radio. <laughs>
1: Sunday the twenty ninth of June. Sunday. We're always happy Sunday. Better than Monday. This is Patty. <laughs> and we're on K Rod Radio. Having fun with you guys today. We're talking science. I know, science and space and who knows what else? We are on the next space show with Alan, Joe, 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 Joe. <laughs> hey,
2: Al. Hey, Joe. What's going on today? We got a lot to cover. We've had a couple of weeks. We've been down, um, Taking care of uh, some personal business, covering some stuff, uh, and spending a lot of time catching up. Uh, There's been a lot going on the last uh, several weeks. Um, We're going to jump right in (coughs) with uh, an interesting announcement. Uh, Apparently, a uh,
3: hmm? okay.
2: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. we got to let yeah, you know how to join. Yeah, take care business okay. first, okay? Yeah, KWOD Radio, the next space. Uh, yeah. We're talking tonight. If you want to join us, uh, call 714-242-5145. Join the conversation. Um, and, of course, we've always got the, the flash chat going. Uh, chime in if you've got a comment or also, a question. Also, be
1: adding the links that he's talking about as as we're doing this, so that way you guys can click on it. These are... Clickable links. You just click on mm-hmm. it and go right to that website, uh, and then you can see what we're talking
2: about. Kind we of concept. St- <laughs> <laughs> it sure is. We start tonight with uh, with our top story uh, about something that's been in the news recently several times. NASA's Morpheus lander uh, has been undergoing tests in the last uh, few months. I know they just recently, uh, I think it was last month, had a nighttime landing today or. Um, We have an article that talks about someone who's actually done the math to calculate that they could scale up this Morpheus lander into a fully capable um, lunar lander that could carry people as well as supplies and still be able to take off. Uh, Interesting article, uh, exoscientistblogspot.com. The article appeared on um, in in, in this month in their website. Check it out. Now there is a good bit of math in there, based on a fourteen million dollar development. Do what? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Bad boy.
1: He jumped on people. So hang on.
2: (laughs) Yeah, the other one was an old article. Why? Yeah. We don't. We want to make sure that we cover recent news. You know, right? Oh, so you're saying it jumped
1: the other one because
2: it's yeah, because it's 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 three years old. So oh, we want to cover yeah, current it. news, um, and things like this. So, but anyway, back to the article that we were talking about. They've estimated that based on a 14 million dollar development cost for two prototypes, one scaled up by a factor of three, might cost 21 million dollars. And of course, the interesting thing about these numbers is that this is a far cry, far lower than the billions of dollars estimated to develop a lunar, a manned lunar lander from scratch. Oh, and one of the things that, that I've always been a bugaboo about is the challenges that are represented by government uh, planning and design programs, which take decades to do something. So anything started now on a brand-new lander would probably take 10 to 15 years before it would see fruition and come to the point of testing and so forth. So, yeah, the, the, I've been watching... Um, the the Morpheus program with great interest. uh, It offers and presents uh, lots of technology that's going to be very important as we move forward into both not only lunar landers but uh, even Mars landers. Moving on, Russian controllers uh, pointed uh, about a smoke problem we had in the ISS last last couple weeks uh, a smoke problem? Yeah, they had a heater that uh, either overheated or its water reclamation system generated a problem and started filling up the Russian segment with smoke. They quickly found the problem wow. and shut the unit down, and you know, no injuries, no dangers, uh, that type of thing. So, and this points to something about the International Space Station that I don't think a lot of people realize, and that is, is that even though the space station is there for research purposes a large chunk of their time is spent in maintaining the system and making repairs. Sure. And this is this is something that we also need to be aware of that even, you know, in any home that we're going to have, whether it be the ISS or whether it be that wonderful three-bedroom ranch you've got down in in Mesa or who knows, Canada, wherever, you're going to have you're going to be spending a good chunk of time Maintaining it as a, a living space for yourself, and this is one of the things that I, I really and we'll be talking a little bit more about this tonight in the commentary section. So, but uh, moving on. Okay, here's something else. Okay, we, the internet was a buzz the last two weeks. Um, Harold White, uh, NASA physicist, revealed that he and a team were working on a design for a faster-than-light ship. Now, artist Mark Redmaker uh, worked with White and they created this gorgeous uh, uh, Star Trek influenced uh, craft
3: oh, that's cool.
2: based on uh, uh, faster than light uh, theories and, and, and so forth that, that White is actually working on. It is a gorgeous ship. Uh, check out the article. There's some links to uh, more of the renderings that they've got I on the website. That. So there's there's a lot you guys, of you got
3: guys, you to guys see that that's really oh cool. yeah,
2: it's 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 gorgeous. We have we have Star Trek influences. Mm-hmm. We have influences from other things as well as, and all of this is fit into the basic design with the ba- with the overall hoops that would generate the warp field that would then transport them through space. Cool. Lots of interesting stuff. They talk a little bit about the theory, but not a whole lot. Um, I did look at an article a, a while back, and the math is intense. I tell you what, that is some intense math, and of course, a lot of it's theoretical. Uh, moving on, our next link is to um, a link from, uh, oh gosh, where did this link come from? I forget. That is from YouTube. Well, yeah, it's, it's from the YouTube. I um, okay, what
1: well, I'll
2: find it for you. Yeah, Museum of Science and Industry uh, in Chicago. They they're apparently partnering uh, for the goals of an investigation to evaluate a BLSS. Now, do you know what BLSS stands for? Not sure, I know. Biological Life Support System. Now, what they're looking to do is use biological components to manage University food. University of Arizona. That's, I, I knew it was them. Uh, this reminds me of, the, it is, it's the Controlled Environment Agriculture Center, the SEAC team. Now many of you may remember that SEAC is also the crew who's doing the Antarctica farm at, at the South Pole Station. And they've been doing this for several years. Now that system actually is based on hydroponics, uh, and it produces a, a good deal of food for the South Pole Station. This BLS approach, BLSS approach is a follow-on to that process. Now actually, CSCAC actually has a um, design prototype that they've, that they've been working on for several years. They were actually out at the uh, Tucson Book Festival couple of years ago yeah. with uh, like tables and sketches and they were talking about their uh, Mars version of their automated greenhouse. Interesting science, lots of good stuff to read about um, and they're talking about trying to use this as a foundation for um, working and supplying people with their air, food, water, recycling, handling wastes. And making sure that we've got a mini biosphere that they, that our astronauts and uh, future settlers can actually live in. Um, from the medical field, we have some more information about new dangers related to space flight, particularly space flight, space flight with zero g. Um, they're finding that it's it really isn't a surprise that many things whether it be problems with their eyes from the swelling of the fluids building up in their heads during zero-g activities to now they're finding that um, your arteries can actually get hard in the process of being up there Um, i mean this is just these are just some of the things we've talked and there's been recent articles about radiation there's been articles about now we have uh, artery damage on long missions. We have the radiation. You've got the galactic cosmic rays. Um, and, and, you know, even psychiatrists are talking about the issues that we face on these six-month-long journeys, that some of the crew are likely to have psychological or at least interpersonal challenges on ships to get to Mars. So, again, uh, in the news again. Yeah, we have
1: plenty of science fiction. You
2: know stories about um, oh yeah people cracking up on the yeah. way yeah I mean it's it, it's not some it's something that this isn't new news we know about this yeah and you know just as a as a point of commentary I have to point to these things and say hey NASA take a look at what the Navy's doing you've got a hundred to two hundred guys on nuclear submarines they yeah. spend six months six to nine months at sea. You got sailors have been doing this for hundreds of years.
3: Yeah,
2: you know, so exactly. there are um, there are ways to mitigate these these issues, mm-hmm. and we need to look to sailing vessels and submarines
1: as examples.
2: As examples, yeah. you know, this shouldn't be a Good. surprise. These should not be surprises. <laughs> um, and then also on the article that looks at um, issues with changing in eyesight and um, artery damage, long-duration spaceflight is hard on the body. We know that. So is long-duration sea travel uh, yeah, on, yeah. on Earth, yeah. whether you're in a submarine, whether you're on a ship uh, on, on the surface of the ocean, or now, we're finding that these Long-term things... long
1: traveling is dangerous, period.
2: Well, yeah. So, again... Everybody
1: really made it to the New World, you know?
2: Absolutely. Uh, Recent news from China. Three yawn cheers stepped out of China's Lunar Palace 1 after a 105-day shakeout mission um, on Earth, uh, munching on protein-rich mealworms and other delicacies. They basically built their own version of Biosphere, much smaller, much more compact, uh, and carried out their first long-duration multi-crew sealed cabin research. Beijing University of Aeronautics and Astronautics and they basically—it's uh, integrative, uh, envir- exper- integrative experimental facility for permanent astro based life support, artificial closed ecosystem palace. I like the little short name, palace. <laughs> it's a mouthful. And so this is this is relatively this is a lot of research very similar to uh, our research, uh, the Mars One research program that looks into long duration uh, missions. So we've got a lot of people doing research on these things. So we're we're finding out a lot of stuff that we're going to be facing. Um, On the Russian front, uh, cosmonaut Anna Kikina, Kikina, I'm not sure how to pronounce that one, um, is back going through cosmonaut training. Apparently she was rejected um, early on as as part of the program, but has been reinstated into the Cosmo program recently, uh, and they don't really give a, a solid reason on that, uh, other than to say that she could still be disqualified as time goes forward. So that that's kind of cool. We got another woman going into space. Um, so lots of exciting things. Here's something new uh, published in forms, Forbes Forbes uh, recently. We've got, they, they have an article that talks about four uh, of the companies working in the new new space environment. And they focus on XCOR and their links, which carries basically one passenger at a time, but can do four trips a day. Average cost is estimated at $95,000. Then there's a, a new one that I hadn't even heard about until I got to this article. That's World View. Enterprises, which is basically, I think these guys are newcomers or something, or they've been working for a while. Um, they're kind of like what uh, Bob Gardner did, the 100,000-foot skydive guy, that uh-huh. rode his balloon up to 100,000 feet. These folks are building a balloon that goes only to the edge of space, so sadly no zero-g flights, and it's to start in 2016, and tickets are $75,000, including cocktails. So you get cocktails with that. I would hope so. <laughs> uh, and basically, it's it's basically just a big balloon ride, uh, but the, the capsule class, goes up.
3: First class, all the way.
2: Oh yeah, oh yeah. Virgin Galactic. We've we've all been hearing about Virgin Galactic. I know Richard Branson's your one of your heroes. Oh gosh. Uh, yeah, he's sixty five year old hot body. Yeah, not Okay, yeah, it's the hair and the British accent, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Virgin Galactic. They're selling tickets two hundred fifty thousand. <laughs> That's a piece.
3: That's is this plane Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, Virgin Galactic, uh, we have to admit, one of the things about these four that they have chosen in this article is, is X-Core is a rocket plane. It takes off from the ground, shoots up into suborbit, does its thing, and then comes down and lands like a plane. Worldview Enterprises is actually a balloon that goes up and then uh, uses a parafoil to come back to Earth. Virgin Galactic, is a, uh, an aircraft that craft, that carries a smaller rocket plane that lets the rocket plane launch from underneath its belly the, the plane then returns to the runway while the rocket plane goes up and then does its thing with six passengers and comes back to Earth and lands like a plane mm-hmm. SpaceX is a traditional rocket system um, they're looking at they're not quite looking at passengers yet. They haven't been man-rated yet. They're working on that now. A lot of things going on, but SpaceX is a traditional rocket, and for many of us, we saw uh, Elon Musk unveil the Dragon Version 2. The Dragon Rider oh, yeah. was unveiled a couple, of, cool. couple of weeks back. Uh, lots of fanfare, gorgeous uh, reveal. Awesome. Oh, yeah, uh, increasing. Uh, we have another space tourist getting ready to take off. Sarah Brightman, a uh, British soprano singer, is going to pay $52 million for, next, for a flight next year on board the Soyuz to the ISS, and she's going to be spending 10 days as a tourist. And uh, space, I believe it's Space Adventures is uh, I mean, helping make this, the yes. The
1: ultimate getaway, man.
2: The ultimate getaway. At least it is today. I mean, give us 20, this 30 years.
1: I mean, yeah. Do what? 52 million. Yeah, I just. Oh
2: yeah, that's that's a lot of money, you know. (laughs) So she's she's working on her mission plan now, and hopefully we'll have lots more information for you as the weeks go by. Russia is putting together some upgrades into the Soyuz for. Get this, two people have paid to fly around the moon. We actually got tourists who have actually paid to fly around the moon and back. So this is going to be a landmark uh, point. This is a big milestone that we want to watch for as time goes on. Uh, The Russians are actually making their upgrades and moving forward with that. Uh, On the SpaceX front, SpaceX has been in the news recently, quite a lot happening. They're firing uh, salvos over towards uh, ULA and Boeing uh, and now and Boeing and U L A have been firing back. Now two of Europe's companies, uh Airbus and Safran are joining forces. And they're looking at ways to challenge SpaceX um attempts to steal their customers. Um
1: I'm getting I'm getting it all in there, guys. <laughs> his space uh, his tourism went through like three or four things here,
2: so you yep.
3: guys got a lot to look at.
2: So a lot of of articles to refer to in the links. Check those out, guys. Um, This is interesting when we look at the news with Airbus and Safran uh, kicking in to challenge SpaceX's push to become the low-cost leader in satellite launches and cargo launches to the ISS. They're already making serious waves. Um, SpaceX wants to be the leader. And at their price point, they will. Oh, yeah. They will literally
3: the right. take the
2: market yeah. by storm, okay. assuming they can survive through the onslaught of the many Goliaths that they're faced up against.
3: That's Goliaths.
2: Oh, yeah. And it, it's going to be interesting to watch and how we can then, as, as citizens, start to support them. Uh, speaking of SpaceX, uh, last uh, a week or so ago, they attempted to... Um, Complete their their second attempt to launch the six Orbcom OG2 satellites into orbit from Cape Canaveral. However, they found a minor issue with the rocket, uh, as well as the weather was not kind to them that day either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've reset that launch date for, I believe it's uh, next week around or next month, middle of June, middle of July. It's
1: gotta be July. I
2: believe it's around the fourteenth. We're just finishing I think was the next June. launch. Yeah. So. Um, Keep that in mind as you go. Keep an eye out for SpaceX next launch. Uh, in the news, you know, there was an article last week that came out about uh, Boeing was looking at releasing um, early notices to their staff about possible layoffs. But they got a reprieve. Or actually, commercial crew partners got a reprieve. Um an amendment signed by William Gersten Meyer, NASA's Associate Administrator for Human Explorations, on May 16th gave SpaceX until the March 31st um, and uh, gave XCOR until or Sierra Nevada got an extension through March 31st as well. Now I believe also Boeing also got an extension and all three of them combined uh, money that will be dispersed is over $460 million from NASA to these commercial crew space partners. Um, where are we at here? Last one. The commercial
1: crew partners.
2: That's what I was just talking about. <laughs> Come on, girl. I mean, catch up.
1: Fuck, you were know, following and then all of a sudden you went
2: there. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of stuff's been going on in the last couple of weeks, folks. Um, And it's really interesting how things are heating up in uh, not only just commercial crew, but in the technology that we're starting to see come into play um, and things that are happening uh, throughout the industry. As we move on into related tech segment.
1: By the way, people, I think what you need to do, just because he's really going through it fast, is is copy that whole thread
2: and, (laughs) <laughs> and put it in a file, so
1: that way you guys
2: can, can Well, a lot of this,
3: leisure.
1: a lot
2: of this news that we're covering, is is recent news, but it's stuff that uh, some of you may have missed. Grab the ones that you did, and uh, well, go for it. They,
1: let's let's yeah, keep up. Really, really, yeah, because so as it turns off, they may not be able to get it. So That's. copy and paste those. Sure. To another folder, and then that, or no file that way you guys can go back and, and read it all.
2: Absolutely. Great
1: stuff.
2: Oh yeah. Again, there's a lot of stuff going on in in, uh, in the next space. We've got. Uh, I mean, you got China pushing for for orbit and eventually going to the moon. You've got India as well as ESA are both working on programs to get to the moon. Uh, we've got multiple programs gearing up, both in the private sector and in the and in the government sector, headed targeting Mars. Uh, the only challenge is to see who, who, and when actually stuff gets there. Uh, multiple lander programs as well. So here's here's some interesting news. Um, there was a company released uh, some information this past week talking about. Fuel cells. How many of us have uh, been following fuel cells and, and just for a quick refresher, a fuel Is cell
3: following
2: fuel cells? Well, no. sure. Some of us have. I mean I, I'm 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 I am a research geek. I am I'm always keeping up on alternative energy and things like that. Now fuel cells are kinda like a like a uh, battery, sort of. Okay. But instead of with the battery you recharge it and then it it discharges. And of course, you've got that whole cycle of recharging and discharging. A fuel cell is actually like a gas tank or like a car. You fill it up with fuel, then it operates for a while, and then you've got to refuel it. So it, there's some similarities there. But the idea of the promise of fuel cells is, is that they can do what batteries or what cars do for far less input energy, and they're more efficient, or at least that's the theory. Now a fuel cell converts chemical energy directly into electrical energy, so it it doesn't need moving parts or anything like this. Another thing that makes fuel cells so cool is you can stack them into pieces. In other words, you can take a fuel cell plate, as in this particular example, um, a plate, and you can combine them together like you do cells in a battery. And you, make, you can make your fuel cell as big or as small as you need for whatever the application is. If you need something very small and compact that doesn't really need a lot of power, you can use just a few cells and make a complete fuel cell from that. Or if you need something that needs some serious juice, then you can stack them up into a, a big package. Now, um, these guys are working on, uh, and who is this? Uh, this was ikts in Dresden, Ceramic Technologies and Systems, is working on a fuel cell that they're hoping could actually be used in homes to provide most, if not all, of the power requirements of of an average home. This would be very cool, but you know I've seen other technologies like the... uh, there's a nuclear reactor that they were talking about building. For homes? For homes! Yeah, it's about the size of a suitcase. Wow! I remember that hit the news uh, a couple of years ago as a fa- as a matter of fact. I wonder if they gave it was a, a test theory. For that. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I remember the the uh, the article about that one. it said you could actually walk up and hug this thing. It put out so little radiation. <laughs>
1: yeah, they say that.
2: Well, there's there's always those decades later.
1: Dark decade um, later.
2: Right. There's always a decades later. these things uh, these fuel cells or home, as they're as they're talking about. Now, they're still in the research stage, um, but the beauty is, is that they're very much, again, like I said, they're very much like batteries. They're a dry cell, and they are stackable. You can set them up in series and parallel to get the kind of power that you need. Um, they don't have uh, cost estimates yet. At least I didn't see it in the article. But it is interesting that we've still got some progress being made in fuel cell technology, and that they're they're really moving forward with it. Um, we got some folks doing some uh, interesting articles. Uh, TRED Research Laboratories uh, is looking at bioregenerative life support systems again, the, like the one from Siac University of Arizona, uh, and they've put out what they call the Asteroid Hunters Resource Guide. Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> I like that name. There's, there's some, so
1: many asteroid, you know, right. asteroid hunters out there. You know, they got yeah. a whole book on
2: it. And so, and that's essentially what they've done here. They they've put together a lot of information. There's some history. There's some information about uh, what it would take to get to some of the asteroids. They have talked real briefly in a couple of spots about some of the asteroids that that one might um, might target, and some of the issues associated with that. So. Uh, welcome Figment to the show. If you've got questions or comments, chime in. Let us know what you think. Um write a in the chat
1: or you can always <laughs> call us at 714-242-5145.
2: Absolutely. Um, moving on to a recent uh, related tech to space. You know, we've we've been hearing a lot of noise about the three D printer that's oh, now been approved for space use on the ISS. It's gonna be heading up uh, actually. In, oh yeah, they'd be fun. Well in this article they actually it's kind of fun. they actually show it uh, having printed a Yoda head and bust. Um, and they're actually been toying with it and they talk they again we, we know they've been they've approved the 3d printer to go up to the International Space Station. But you know this particular article talks about some of the issues to be faced in trying to do 3d printing in space. And one of the things that, that I've talked about in the past, with dealing with settling on the moon or even on mars is the differences in gravity that we have to deal with on those planetary celestial bodies well when you're in space and you don't have a gravity field to control a lot of stuff you're going to get some issues with the placement of the material that you're trying to 3d print (laughs) it's not going to be as consistent as a 3d printer was designed to do as it is on earth and that's just one of the issues.
1: Find a
3: way it's,
2: to keep
1: it, you know, down where it, it can be worked on.
2: Sure. Well,
1: without a
2: floating way. Exactly, and <laughs> and you know, there's there's a lot of different things. Some of the tolerances are adjusted for the zero g zero g environment, um, but they're still they're gonna they're gonna have to work on a whole lot of stuff. Plus, um, this thing, like you say it can release particles that you can't trap because these little these little bits of ink or plastic or even in some cases metal are going to be so finely uh, wow. sized that they're going to be very discreet things you're going to have to really watch them. I, I suspect probably the first thing they're going to do is put this thing into a chamber that they can vacuum any floating particles out just as through a filter uh, just as a first step.
1: <laughs> I can imagine.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um, you know another some other research recently that's come into play, and I remember reading something about this uh, a few months back is the idea of deflector fields. Now, apparently they've got uh, they've discovered some things about radiation shelters on the moon. And basically what these are, parts of the moon's surface have been shielded from radiation by an extremely weak magnetic field. And I, when I read this article, I found it fascinating because recent research has suggested that we need to create a huge power source to power a huge magnetic field in order to either deflect or uh, defend the spacecraft going to Mars from galactic cosmic radiation or solar radiation that they might run into. What these guys are suggesting is that based on research they've been following up with on the moon's surface, they're finding areas that where a weak field can actually be as effective or more effective than a strong field in either deflecting or at least slowing down the aspects of radiation that could be an issue for our astronauts or settlers going to the moon of Mars. So a lot of studies, a um, lot of interesting article. I strongly recommend take a look at it, folks. Definitely a good read. Um, and here we go will anyone ever own their own land in space and may we get wars in space in the future. Uh, this article was, was curious to read um, because there are a lot of things up in the air today about owning land in space or on the moon or on Mars because supposedly, theoretically, the 1967 Space Treaty forbids governments from owning or appropriating any land either on the moon or on Mars. Now the interesting thing is is that in order for a person to appropriate land, usually a government authorizes that purchase and that person then pays the government for the land. But if the government can't own the land, yeah. there's nobody to sell it to them. So it becomes, it can well, gets to a point where yeah. you're looking at almost a frontier situation it's where it's
1: either complicated or not complicated at all.
2: Exactly, and and I think you know, what we're going to find they're going to
1: be complicated. They're
2: going to try and make it complicated. So definitely an interesting read. Um, check it out. Uh, and here's another one. Again, from the psychology state, to the psychology and uh, and so forth. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
3: okay.
2: This one this one caught me by surprise. I guess, I
3: guess you're in trouble.
2: Well, I'm not an extrovert. I tend to be an introvert, even though when I'm behind a microphone, I don't seem like an introvert. In fact, you'd probably swear I'm not. But, okay.
1: Some music going on there.
2: All right, I hate these. A lot
1: of bad things.
3: Where is somebody's... this? It's got to
2: be at the top. Where is it? All right, we'll just mute that thing.
3: Yeah, you don't. Yeah.
2: I really hate these uh, articles. I, I hate the them. pages that do that autoplay. But anyway, <laughs> extroverts could cause problems on a mission to Mars. Um, they've done space simulations and found surprisingly some of the more reserved people ostracize the extroverts aboard the station, the mission. But, you know, we see yeah. this in, in everyday life as well. When you've got a group of people focused on whatever they're focused on and you've got an extrovert, say, a, say you've got a, a salesperson, like yeah. a gregarious person, like a salesperson, comes into a department mm-hmm. and they're all focused on their work. They're individualized. They're focusing on their individual part of the program. Um, as a, when I was a programmer, I used to see this a lot. Um, yeah. You'd get a guy who had done his own websites, who had done sales, and he comes into a corporate environment Where these guys are heads down coders. And this guy drives people nuts. (laughs) Because he's always got to be talking to somebody. And he's He's always got to put his fingers in and everything. Not that he's trying to hurt anything. But he's gregarious or she. And they need to be involved. They need to be um, active. They need to be going through conversations. And oftentimes, whether it's a programming environment or... An office environment is also another place where this can become a problem if you've got a really gregarious person. Yeah, yeah. I remember my younger days, back in the day when I was doing office work. Back oh, man, day. we're talking age day. of dinosaurs in the computer industry. <laughs> back when we had typing pools.
3: Oh, my goodness.
2: Now I remember when the typing pools changed over to wood processing centers, okay, which was really cool. We got a lot more work done most of the time. But what, what, I, what I remember seeing there too was, yeah, if you had a very gregarious person come into that pool, uh-huh. male or female, they oh, yeah. tended to upset the amount of work that got done. Yeah. And it can really create problems
3: in an fire. environment
2: yeah where you're, you're focused and the thing is. Now the thing that they also found was that um, you're more introverted, you're more task oriented people, um, are going to be a little bit more level-headed, or at least mood-wise, okay. level mooted I guess is the no, word. So extrovert gonna.
1: does not equal leadership.
2: Right. Okay. Which which could be an issue, and so these are challenges that again our long uh, long-term crew teams will have to face. Now I know uh, NASA did their launch of the uh their flying saucer as it was called and basically they used a balloon to send this craft up to a certain height and as i recall if i if i if i'm getting it right uh it went up to a certain height and then it fired its motor and the idea was to test a low mass um, deceleration tool method for the um, for future spacecraft. And again, the idea is to slow spacecraft down as they approach Mars or another planet or moon that has an atmosphere that's very different in composition from Earth. And the idea being, of course, to be able to modify that deceleration tool for the various different atmospheric compositions. They did have a successful launch. They did have, I believe, a good recovery. Uh, So definitely some articles to check out there.
1: I have astronauts can suffer a visual
2: impairment in space. Yeah, this is actually an older article. We talked about this earlier in the show uh, because you've got guys with arteries are getting hard. We've got uh, guys developing, or at least beginning to see the symptoms of diabetes. We've got guys with uh, muscle atrophy. Um, we've got guys having difficulties doing a lot of stuff. I mean, their strength literally deteriorates the longer but, they stay. But,
1: but you know, in that right here. try I here. Mean, well, it's yeah, and in, in
2: one of the comments that was made in the diabetes study, had to do with the aspect that these are things that happen with sedentary lifestyles, actually here on earth. You develop eye impairments, you develop um, uh, weight gain, you develop muscle atrophy or at least muscle weakness, you develop diabetes, you develop all sorts of heart problems. So this is not real new, we just haven't made the links to these issues that we face. And space. regarding space, yeah. and one of the one of the things that that I've often said before um, is that I sometimes wonder if NASA is looking for really strange stuff. They're not finding really strange stuff. They're finding common stuff that's throwing these engineers for a loop, because they're they're not recognizing that a lot of these maladies, or at least the symptoms bear a marked similarity to conditions and issues that we face right here on Earth. Uh, as we spoke earlier, isolation is an issue on long-term space missions, but sailors and maritime submariners have been dealing with that level of isolation for hundreds of years. Why can't NASA look at those things? And the beauty of it is is that uh, Navies around the world have been dealing with isolation issues for hundreds and, and hundreds of years. I mean, going back to the 15, 1600s and before. In fact, into uh, the years before Christ.
3: Wow. Okay.
2: Submariners have been dealing with these issues for over a thousand years, and they have tried-and-true solutions mm-hmm. that work so that they can function on long voyages. I mean, when you think about the Phoenician sailors, these guys might have been on the ocean for six, nine months out of a year. Right, we're
3: talking about that And you're
2: talking, you know, back in the Phoenician days, you were lucky to get 20 people on board. If you only got 20 people you got to look at for six months, man, you're going to go nuts. (laughs) I know I would have a hard time living with just 20 people for six months or more. Yeah,
1: problem. One person. Well,
2: there, there is always that. (laughs) So, but uh, these are issues that we face in the upcoming challenges and so forth. We're going to take a brief break, um, and when we come back in just a few minutes, we're going to start our commentary section. And so, hang on, folks. We won't be gone long.
1: This is K Radio and this is Patty Holstrand. And we are on, well, we're doing the next space show with Alan Joe, episode seven. We'll be right back. This is KWOD Radio and this is Patty Holster and yes, 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 we're on live as Sunday. And we are talking with Alan Joe with the space show. <laughs> well, I want to welcome everyone who's listening and remind them that you can, you can either put your questions in the chat area, which is just below the show information. Type it in and I will definitely get it right over to Al so he can answer you. Of course she has some weird question for me and I'll answer that too. So our call-in number is 714-242-5145 That's what it is always 714-242-5145 So You
2: have
1: some commentary to share
3: with
2: us. Right. Tonight we're going to talk uh, briefly on on two topics I wanted to address tonight. Um, The first one you know the National, the Space Access Society, Political Action Alert went out back on the fourth. Now, and you know it was it was interesting because they talk about something that's, that was going on in Congress, where um, Senator Richard Shelby from Alabama added a requirement to the NASA funding bill, where he wanted to increase greater accountability and budgetary transparency in the commercial crew program, blah, 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 blah. A lot of legalese and crap. Basically what it meant is that the new space companies uh, that were getting funding from NASA, that would be um, Sierra Nevada, SpaceX, and I can't remember who the third one was. SpaceX, oh, and Boeing. Uh, But the idea is that that SpaceX and Sierra Nevada would be expected to add the additional paperwork that Boeing currently processes in its financial reports that go back to NASA and the government. Now, I, I don't pretend to understand a lot of this, other than it would. the article says that it would add a lot of extra paperwork that could increase costs for SpaceX and Sierra Nevada. Well, yeah, government costs a whale of a lot of money, and that's true. Do I think it's right that this uh, politician is is doing this? No, I don't think it's right. However, did I not see it coming? Gee, yeah, I saw it coming. The senator from Alabama is obviously trying to protect the Boeing jobs in his state. Now that's been said by multiple commentaries on online. It's been it's been voiced by many people in their videos and things like this. Uh, do I see this as business as usual? Absolutely. This is how NASA and the commercial space sector works. It's cost plus bullcrap. One of the advocacies that I am trying to make as I move forward, is that it is long past time for the citizens to tell the government to take the NASA program and shove it. An article we talked about earlier tonight was about the Morpheus lander and how a private uh, researcher has suggested that a Morpheus lander, which has been showing great successes lately, is a NASA program. But his assertion in his article which is on our link list, by the way, was that that particular lander, the Morpheus, could be scaled up about three three sizes and qualify as a substantial uh, 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 manned lander with an ascent module to successfully land on the moon. Now, their projection sh- suggests that that particular lander, scaled up could be done so for a few tens of millions of dollars instead of the 10 to 14 billion dollar price tag I think that's been quoted by uh, NASA in the past. And this is government business as usual, cost plus manufacturing uh, where business refuses, businesses who contract with NASA refuse to take any kind of investment in it. And while I can understand that to a degree, This is then being laid on the backs of taxpayers, and this is just not a good thing. I believe that it's time the taxpayers, you and me, the average Joes out there, to start banding together and finding ways to support programs that are privately defined, privately funded, privately structured, that can accomplish the goals that we've been looking for since Apollo landed on the moon. There are many challenges that we face in looking to do that. But it represents, a, I think, a quantum leap in the potential that we could actually achieve over the next decade. NASA doesn't expect to get to the moon or Mars, either one, until the 2020s. And that's six years from now. And they've been working on stuff on all these technology things for 20 years. And the ISS has been up there at least 20 years. So I I really have a hard time believing that the snail's pace of NASA and government programs is going to make any progress. Now, I'm going to kind of shift gears here, because what I want to comment on next is is along this line. And that is, is that one of the things I was running into this week was the idea about space settlement. And I was perusing the uh, National Space Society website, and they have a space settlement nexus, nss.org slash settlement. Check it out. A lot of good information, a lot of great pictures. I mean, they've got some of the best pictures out there, and they've collected them from all over. They've also got links to several of the volumes of of informative works that talk about space settlement, space habitats, uh, and, and we're not talking about uh, a module that's attached to the space station. No, we're, when we talk in space settlement habitats, we're talking like O'Neill Cylinders. Uh, particularly, one example comes to mind is Calpana One. Uh, and again, the artwork is available uh, through the website. Check it out, through through the website. But the the thing is, I was running through this, the question that came to mind, along the lines of the Political Action Network and how it's time for citizens to band together and come up with new ways, private people, to come up with companies that we can move forward on space settlement without NASA, is when I look at all of these things from Bob Zubrin and, and Mars Society, from the Space Society, when we look at the O'Neill, uh, uh, Gerard K. O'Neill's work, when we look at the, the, the work from a lot of these other people, um, they talk about these huge, um, craft in space that can hold numbers as large as, as thousands of people and or even in, in one case, I remember one mentioned that it could hold um, 500,000 or a half a million people. That, that's a wonderful vision. Don't get me wrong. It's a great vision. I think someday we'll get there. I really believe that. But I don't think it's going to be the government. And I had a thought today as I was thinking about this, that, that really brought it home to roost. And here's the thing. Here's how it goes. When we look back at American history, and for that matter, look at the history of any any government on the planet at this point that has had the funds to build housing projects. Okay, now think about this. When was the last time that a housing project designed and funded by a government was actually a success. If you have heard of one, if you can point me to an article, I would love to see it. Because in my cursory research, I couldn't find anyone that was still in a, let's say, fiscally sound condition. There were projects back east in, in many of the New England states, um, New York, New Jersey, Um, that attempted to create low-cost housing uh, for the poor and to provide a way that um, these people could have housing at a reduced rate that wouldn't be a tax upon the taxpayers themselves. Uh, And in every instance that I found, it had failed and to a large degree had deteriorated uh, not only just in the quality of the people that were there, and the oversight, but also in the quality of the facility that they were living in. Yeah,
3: okay.
2: Many of these things have become so dilapidated that they're not even fit to live in. And so, I again, I, I go back to the beginning of the discussion here and I say, hey, when has the government been able to build any kind of a habitat that people could live in for any length of time that didn't turn into a big boondoggle and degraded into something that could not be supported over the long term?
1: It usually starts as some grand vision.
2: Absolutely. Now, this is not to to denigrate O'Neill or or Holbrow or Johnson or Heppenheimer or any of these people who came up with some great, wonderful visions. But here's the thing. Robert Zubrin was the last one to come up with a great vision back in 96. And, in fact, John Lewis uh, came out with Mining the Sky back in nineteen ninety six as well. Now their visions weren't quite as expansive and wonderful and visual as were O'Neill's or Happenheimer's. But the problem I have with these visions is that they don't they don't look at the nitty gritty. They don't look at the day to day things that it's going to take to get us to that point where we can live in a housing project that's going to hold 5,000 people, 10,000, 500,000 people. These are projects that are going to take multiple decades to build. And then to populate these things? How long does it take to move 500,000 people from the surface of the earth to a space settlement? Anybody ever thought about that? (laughs) <laughs> That's going to be one huge big project. When can when you consider that today's spacecraft can carry a maximum SpaceX is the only one that can, well actually Boeing CST 100 can carry 7 people. So just just try the math. If you figured one launch a month, which is about what we can afford, how long is it going to take to send 500,000 people up or hey uh, let's just bring it down to a decent decent number. How long is it going to take to send 1,000 people up to a space habitat? At a rate of seven people per month, you know that's that's uh, that's barely 80 people a year. All right, those numbers just aren't going to work. So, and then let's let's backtrack just a little bit. O'Neill cylinders, of which an example is Capana One, represent some really gorgeous visual things that we can latch onto that give us hope for the future. But how long and what is it going to take to build one of those? In NASA's current asteroid mining program, the the point that's being made is that we can use robotics technology, send it up to an asteroid, and have those robots mine the asteroid, um, define the ore, and do one of two things. They're either going to construct something right on the asteroid or... They're going to turn around and turn that ore into something that can be sent back to Earth. Okay, first of all, i got a real problem with this. Any ore mined in space is going to be hundreds of times more expensive than that ore would be on Earth.
1: If they find it here.
2: If they can find it on Earth. Well, we know most of the ores that we can find on, on the asteroids can also be found on Earth. Now, there are some exceptions. Uh, China's uh, mining of, oh, what do they call it? Gosh, I'm on the tip of my tongue. Rare Earth elements is beginning to decline because they're running out of those materials. So that would be something that may have value if they could find it in an asteroid. Um, for those of you who may not understand, Rare Earth elements are those components that go into the chips that make our computers, our cell phones, And all our electronic and digital toys, such as this computer that we're all listening listening into. Um, So there's a challenge. We really need it. Um, But the reality is, is that even at the rates we're paying today, if asteroid mining were available today, and they could find rare earth elements on an asteroid and bring it to Earth in the next few months, it would still the expense would be far, far Multiple times prohibitive than what we could do here on Earth, and the market will simply not support that. Keep now, um, the the place that I'm talking about: National Space Society, www.nss.org/slash. Settlement, S-E-T-T-L-E-M-E-N-T. This is the website and actually the page on the National Space Society page where they're talking about uh, accesses and links to the O'Neill work, Johnson's and Holbrooke's work on space settlements and design study, Heppenheimer's, O'Neill's, also 76 and 79 works and also uh, Dr. Robert Brubrin's Zubrin and John Lewis's works. Um, I've actually read several of these books, uh, The High Frontier, uh, and again, they these books present some wonderful visions. But if we as a people are going to look at space settlements, whether it be um, in space, as the ISS is, or whether we're going to do settlements on the moon, Mars, asteroids, or anywhere else for that matter. We have to look at how we're going to get to that point. And the challenge that I put out there, that I'm going to put out there for everybody is, is NASA continues to have design challenges where they want students to build finished products of habitats and so forth. Now, even with these design competitions, this is wonderful, but all we're doing is we're perpetuating a vision. We're not perpetuating or building anything that we can do anything about. The steps we need to be looking at is we need to be looking at SpaceX and the example that they have set. We've had visions of landers and habitats and lunar settlements and bases from NASA for decades, but none of those ever talked about what are the step-by-step processes and what are the challenges that we face in getting there and achieving that base or that settlement. How many landings will it take to deliver enough robots to dig the trench, to drop the habitat in, that the robots have to then bury, and then the robots have to go out and either build or install solar panels that will then power that habitat all before people can then arrive? And how many ships is it going to take to deliver enough people to do enough research so that that two weeks that they spend on that base which is now probably 10 years old, that they can then come back to Earth after that two week These These numbers just don't make sense to me. If we're going to talk about moving on to other celestial bodies beyond Earth, then we need to be looking at something that's going to be more long-term. A two-week to three-week stay after a 10-year construction process is not economically viable to me. It is not something that the people are going to want to be behind. One of the things that I found out in researching Settlement was looking at the PR campaigns that NASA did or didn't do back in the Apollo days. One of the interesting things that I found was that as the Apollo program developed, the distance or the time between the launches that went to the moon got longer and longer each year. Actually, we had two or three years between the last two launches. The problem that this created was is that the general public stopped listening. They stopped paying attention. And It strikes me that if we're going to make progress in space, then we need to do more of what's been going on lately with new space. SpaceX is in the news weekly. I mean, it's not a great big splash, but it's enough of a splash that it makes an impact. Now, as we go forward, as SpaceX goes forward, we've got to solve the individual problems and it's got to be engineers who, who are working with this stuff that are going to solve the problems. One of the things that I also challenge is that the guys who design the spacesuits, I don't get the impression that they actually put them on.
1: <laughs> yeah, you got to live by your own words, people.
2: And, you know, I think this is, this is a point that I think goes to a lot of what government research programs do, is these engineers, I mean, now, don't get me wrong here, they are designing and and building wonderful, hugely successful systems, most of them. I mean, when you look at Voyager 1 and 2, now well beyond the solar system boundaries and how long those spacecraft have lasted, these engineers did an incredible job of building spacecraft to last that long in the, the harsh environment that is space. But I've got I to gotta wonder, when we talk about manned spaceflight and the challenges that, that men and women are going to face in the environment that is space, we need the engineers, the people that are designing this stuff, the people that are testing this stuff, to be the ones who are um, making, making the changes. We need tinkerers doing the work. And I know these engineers, a lot of them, are great people, and they're dedicated, and they do some wonderful work. But are they going to make it to space? Is there any hope that they can make it to space? Not on your life. Not in this type time, not in the next. And that handicaps our engineering crews from doing work that's going to uh, meet the needs of long-term space settlement and development. When we look at history, and many people, I've had several people, what's history got to do with it? Well, history's got everything to do with it. Earlier I talked about long-term challenges facing crews on long-term space missions. Well, and I mentioned at the time that seafaring vessels, whether they be on the surface of the ocean or beneath the surface of the ocean, have been dealing with isolation and small crews for almost a thousand years. Why is NASA reinventing this and and instead not looking at what does the Navy do? What do merchantmen do? What do these people do, and how can we take those skills, those methods, and apply them to long-term missions in space? Why are they trying to re-research those issues? We know they're going to be there. It's another ship, for crying out loud. Let's take the low-tech route and take what submariners and mariners have learned thousands of years ago. Instead of trying to redo all of this stuff and waste a lot of time and a lot of effort relearning something that the Navy has known for 100 years. There are problems and there will always be problems. Humans are a problem machine. And speaking of humans being a problem machine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. oh do we
1: never a problem machine. Oh man,
2: oh do we love to argue. And I'll tell you what. You know guys, here's the thing. We want you to call in. We want you to challenge. I want to challenge the listening group to pipe up. We have sat far too long waiting for NASA yeah, you make to deliver it something.
1: People you can't just sit there and wait for it to
2: happen. Yeah. You know, I mean, the Wright brothers were tinkerers, and they gave us aviation. That's sure. Okay, Elon Musk. He's a tinkerer. Look at the guy. I mean, he's he's, he's, hey, he he's done like a tinkerer. solar cell company. He's done an auto company. He's now on the rockets. Okay, this guy's got to be a tinkerer. Be tinkerer. I don't know what he tinkers on at home. Well, he's got his I wife, but,
3: no, no, you know, no.
2: yeah, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> he's had to have been a tinkerer at some time. Um, the guys, I mean, Bert Rutan, he's got the ultimate great tinker job. He does development work in aviation they do custom aircraft this guy gets to tinker all the time he's come up with some of the most impressive the tinker most the hugely popular uh, space uh, aircraft in the last 10 20 years and this guy's phenomenal and he's the team that works with him they, they've really come up with some really great designs so one of the things that if we're going to make real progress we need to get more people involved in their garages coming up with ways. You know, here's, here's another thing. Uh, serious issues that we face are one big example is spacesuits. Now, here's a bit of a challenging example. Um, when you go to buy clothing and you go to a nice tailor shop, Tell me something here. Think about this for a minute. If the tailor you're buying a suit from doesn't wear his own stuff, are you going to buy a suit from him? I wouldn't. If he's not proud, of, if yeah. he's not yeah. confident enough in his own work that he's going to wear what he does and advertise that product, then I really question his ability to deliver a solid product.
1: Unless, of course, it's a cute check.
2: Oh, even more so.
1: Well, she's not likely going to wear a men's suit. She won't but you
2: it. know, if she's that good, I'll bet she's wearing a man's suit tailored for a woman. If she's that good, yes, I'll bet she, she is. better without it. Now, I've seen some women look pretty good in, in a tailored men's suit. <laughs> I mean, tailored for the female form.
1: Right. right That's what right, I mean. Right, right. I
2: mean, if she's well, that good a tailor. Okay,
1: think about
2: L.A. story. L.A. story. What do you mean L.A. Story?
1: L.A. Story is a movie about with, with uh. Oh, Steven. Steve Martin? Steve Martin, yeah. yeah she was a tailor.
2: She was a tailor.
1: Now, I'm sorry, but she looks better without a suit on.
2: Uh, oh, really? You've seen her without clothes on?
1: I've seen her with a tank top, <laughs> and I think that most men would appreciate that far more than a suit. Oh, I,
2: I would agree. I would agree. Okay. But the point that I'm making is, is is a a tailor who does not wear their own product, be it a male or female clothing. If but, they don't if they're not comfortable enough with their own work well, if they're not wearing their yes, own but, work.
1: But what does this have to do with the space suit? I mean it's not like these guys are gonna wear the space suit all over the place.
2: No, they're not. But why should not we
1: do a jack and box flying, they got a suit on.
2: Well yeah, but here's the thing. NASA spacesuits currently are one-off projects.
3: Yeah, yeah they, because they, they measure out
2: things. No, 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 no. 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 It, it has to do with the cost and complexity of the spacesuit and the fact that you've got to seal it right and that if it doesn't fit well, it, it could become a it. risk to the astronaut who's wearing it. So,
1: in other words, it's custom built for them. It's to custom astronaut.
2: built for each astronaut. Yeah, that's but the here's the thing. Point. I think that and and I understand the complexities as they're described, but I also believe that put these engineers who have to design these suits into the suits. It's one thing to have a customer tell you what's wrong with a product. It's another thing for that manufacturer of that product to actually experience that problem. I'm
1: sorry. I just got this vision of, of uh, uh, Incredibles where, where uh – Frozen guy, guy with the guy with the ice. Yeah. He goes to look for his suit when, when mayhem just hit the whole city. Where is my super suit, woman?
2: <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, okay, you're getting off track. But, but it, is, it is important to understand that I believe that the old ways of manufacturing have great value where a person who produces a product has to believe in that product without question. They need to understand that product. They need to try that product themselves. They need to develop that product by solving little problems by understanding those problems. Now, I, I have no doubt these these engineers are trying on the individual gloves. Somebody
1: sent you a picture. This is Sigourney, oh,
3: Sigourney
2: Weaver in a suit. <laughs> she looks okay. So, uh,
3: so what it you guys, reminds me what you guys think.
2: Yeah. She's okay. Yeah, yeah, she actually looks she like a, a guy though. She
1: yeah, she does have a bit of a guy
2: she's, look. Well, you remember uh Julie Andrews in uh, Victor oh, Victoria. Okay. Oh
1: my gosh, that was that this, that was a a woman playing a man playing a woman.
2: Yeah. yeah. That was yeah, just <laughs> that was so many layers it was it was scary. Hey,
1: but it was but here's so the thing. Funny.
2: But the thing I'm trying to get to is the manufacturer of a product needs to believe in that product enough that they're comfortable using it. If Henry Ford didn't believe in his cars enough that he drove one, Mm. how many people do you think would have bought that car?
1: Well, that's true. Okay? Yeah.
2: Now, here's the other thing. Henry Ford drove his cars because he also was a tinkerer himself.
3: That's true. And he
2: made that car better by tinkering on that car.
1: Well, also he built the, he was even more well-known, not just for the creation of the car, but also for the creation of the assembly line.
2: Absolutely. Which is
1: an ultimate tinkering. But
2: oh, know, yeah. And his employees of that day tinkered with that assembly line.
3: Yeah. To make because they
2: were using that assembly line, and it became the single most powerful revolution in, in, in its day, and still is used today in the principles established back then. I truly believe that um, Dava Newman, here's a lady who has developed a prototype spacesuit. They're still working on it. Uh, it's a different kind of design. It's what's called a space activity suit, in other words, a, a um, mechanical counter-pressure spacesuit rather than the balloon spacesuits we're used to seeing. Um, Dava Newman. Google her and Google biosuit. And you'll find all sorts of links. She's been in the news recently. She's done a couple of uh, uh, talks and and some interviews recently and shown off the suit. Um, The idea is that they have realized, uh, particularly because of James Webb's pioneering work back in the 60s. um, I think it was James Webb. (laughs) I'd have to look that up. Um, uh, Google Space Activity Suit. And you can find some of the early research that was actually canceled by NASA in the early 70s as they were focusing on, NASA, on uh, Apollo. They canceled the space activity research. Here's, here's, something, here's a little tidbit of knowledge about the, the space activity suit. Dr. Webb had produced a multi-layer, basically kind of a rubber suit that a person could get into. And they actually tested, I believe it was an arm, in a vacuum chamber. Uh, with the multiple layers. I don't remember. I think it was like six, maybe seven layers.
1: Somebody sent you something.
2: Um, and BioSuit, yes. Um, Oops. Ooh, that one didn't work.
1: That
3: was wrong probably one.
2: Probably spelling. Um, well, what there. Yeah. Um, and his SAS space activity suit there it is. Apparently when yeah. Let me do
1: the WWW, so I can't right. hear that one guys but um, you can copy and put it into your own browser.
2: Yeah. Uh, Davis team has been working on the latest version of the space activity suit which is now called the biosuit and it's as I said it's a mechanical counter pressure. So what it does is it squeezes your skin. They figured out that that you can squeeze the skin to a certain point, and you can get the same results as the balloon suit. But here's the benefit: it's not this tight balloon that makes it hard to squeeze your fingers. And they're working on ways. As you look at some of those photos, they're they're actually building in ways for circulation. They're building in heating and cooling. So they're really coming. They've come a long way so far. Uh, but again, it still has the issue that it's got to be custom fit with a laser scan for each individual oh, to get sure. the suit. Oh, I mean, otherwise you can't
1: get
3: that tight.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, although they haven't indicated yet what some of the cost factors are yet. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops over time. But the thing is that's different about Davin Newman and also uh, Dr. Webb and his work is that these guys are actually putting the suits on and they're evaluating themselves as tinkerers. How can I adjust this? How can I tweak this? And this is what I think we need. And when we look at uh, Elon Musk, Elon Musk is himself an engineer uh, uh, with degrees in in physics and, and engineering both. So this is a man who looks at the designs and, and looks at the end product and says, No, 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 this isn't gonna work. We gotta fix this And he's a hands on kind of guy for, for to a large degree. Oh
1: yeah.
2: And you know, this is what about
1: that ship of his oh yeah anybody that's working
2: on it. And this is what we need. When you look at the X core team, uh they are also a hands on team. The Sierra Nevada group. This is a small, tight knit group who is building and working on and solving these problems one step at a time. Uh, the same goes is, is true of Bert Rutan, developer of uh, Spaceship One uh, and, uh, and, and uh, Mothership. Uh, I forget the name. Darn it. I'm getting tired. So, again, the point I'm making here is we, the people, need to jump in as tinkerers and start doing things that get this done because the visions that we've been fed to date do not present a pathway to the vision and we need that pathway to the vision now because the vision has grown cobwebs the last great vision that we had came from Robert Zubrin in 1996 That is almost 20 years ago. And even his vision did not detail the day-to-day parts of how we would get from Earth to Mars. You have an overview that talks about, okay, you need to send precursor robots. Yeah, and then they need to do this, and they need to do that. Well, we don't even have that robotic technology yet. It's not developed. Which brings us back to the next point. Whether you're looking at Mars, whether you're looking at the moon, we do not have and are not likely to see the robotic technology to move fast enough. Anybody know what the the maximum speed of the Mars rover is? It's like, I think, a foot a day or something like that. It's ridiculously slow and it's not even, it doesn't even registers in miles per day. Uh, It it registers in feet per day. Now, if our robots operated um, that slowly, we would never be able to dig anything in any appreciable amount of time. I don't care if you had 100 of them. So, what this says to me is that we need to put boots on the ground early. Sure. We need to take robots. But we can't depend on robots to do the work for us. Right. In all of history, and, and here's, here's, here's a symbol, from. consider this. In the early settlement days of the New World, it was free men who went in first to establish the baseline, to determine what work needed to be done. And only after they had established the beachhead, and set up the framework to develop homes and towns and cities, that slaves were introduced despite the fact that slave trade was a highly advanced marketplace in the, in, the, in the 15, 1600s. Highly advanced. I mean, there were slaves all over the world. But they didn't introduce slaves into the new world until after they had established a functioning framework into which to bring the slaves into if you've only got a handful of free men, you don't want 100 slaves there. Right. They will revolt, no matter what you do. Sure. I believe that the same lessons apply as we look at creating settlements on the moon or Mars or asteroids. In that, whatever robotic tool, robotic workers we try to place there, there will be problems in the technology. There will be problems in productivity. There will be problems in maintenance and repair that we cannot solve remotely. And that to attempt to believe in that puts us back in the position of a slave revolt or literally a slave labor collapse. Robots cannot now, nor will they in the future, be able to engender enough work to make a settlement process progress fast enough for the public to be willing to support it. And here's a little gem. Consider this. Do we have remotely operated robots in an industry anywhere that function autonomously? The answer is no. The military uses telepresence to operate all its robots, including those that actually fly overseas and drop bombs. We don't want them to be autonomous. Not now, and not for a while to come. Mining. Mining uses robots. No, they don't. They use machines. They use helper machines, whether it's drilling, whether it's uh, inserting explosives into the boreholes. Or whether it's just taking measurements in, in a gas intensive environment, it's telepresence robot. It's telepresence robotics. It's not autonomous robots, because you've got to have a human involved. Now that being said, people have talked about using autonomous robots on the moon or even on Mars. Well, or not autonomous uh, telepresence robots on the moon. We got a light. Uh, a three-light-second difference in the processing of commands that go between the Earth and the Moon. But i got to tell you, the same issues remain. Robots alone have the challenge of maintenance and repair in a highly reactive dust environment. There was an article this week that talked about the damage that's been incurred by uh, the Mars rover's uh, wheel. There's actually a hole in the wheel, and scientists are and engineers are concerned about its potential for being able to make it to the next target destination. Um, and this is one of the issues uh, that I keep running up against. When we go back, was it? Uh, it was either Curiosity or Spirit actually broke a wheel and ended up. Uh, ended up struggling to complete its mission, even though they had extended its mission multiple times because they'd built the rover so well. Uh, Most of the stuff that we've been sending into space is way overbuilt for the missions that they're planning. And and while I think that's a good thing, um, it's given us a lot of extra data that we did not have any dreams of receiving. But the issue still stands, no matter how well-built these rovers are.
3: Nobody
2: here expects it nobody's there to fix it. Uh, And we can't afford right now to send spare parts. But if we want to send people, we have to look at the issues that we face in sending people to put boots on the ground. And that's, again, the issue that brings us back to what we started talking about in the beginning, which is the idea of space habitats perhaps in orbit or perhaps in orbit around the moon or even at uh, EML 1 and 2 if you're going to build something that big let's put this in perspective
3: okay.
2: alright the Empire State building mm-hmm. is huge it's nowhere near as big as, as the new towers that went up at uh, the World Trade Center site okay I know and those things took, those towers, that I whole center, the real towers, yeah.
1: Dam, yeah.
2: those towers okay. took what, 10 years to build? All right. I
3: don't know about that, but.
2: And those were built by men yes. and machines.
3: Yes.
2: Now, granted, they were built on the planet Earth where we've got an atmosphere, we've got gravity we can depend on, we can deal with the winds, we can deal with the weather. If we're going to build something that's, and, and, and as I understand it, these buildings house as as many as, as 5,000 people, I want to say. Uh, I, I, I've heard numbers pantied about, but I, I'm going to use 5,000 for another one. So we're looking at air handling systems. We're looking at uh, steel infrastructure. We're looking at the windows. We're looking at all these kind of things. And it takes men to build these, and that thing took 10 years. Let's say we want to build an inter, a a, a Um, an Empire State Building in orbit. We want to house 5,000 people in orbit. Okay? So we're going to build a Calpana 1 or an O'Neill cylinder built for 5,000 people. The robotic technology, the manufacturing technology, the 3D technology does not yet exist and it still 10 to 20 years out, that would let us build that kind of a facility in orbit. That is the challenge that we face. And robotics, if we look back just 10 years, when the um, drones were first introduced 8 to 10 years ago, now they've come a long way. They've gotten bigger. They've gotten more accurate. To a degree. Americans say, I wonder if I could do something better. We got better. technology? Okay. You got a up here. triggered in rain. Oh,
1: something else is happening.
2: Oh. Oops. We lost part of our show.
1: I have no idea where that's coming from.
2: Close that one down. Yeah,
1: let me see that one. Did
2: it go away?
1: Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that, people.
2: Okay. Let's backtrack just a little bit. If we wanted to build a habitat to house 5,000 people in orbit, we need to look at the history of what it took to build Say, for example, the Empire State Building. Okay? So, if we Google the Empire State Building, and let's go to Wikipedia. Where's the Wikipedia entry? Here we go. Okay. Now, it stands at a height of roughly 1,400 feet and uh, at its time of course was built it was one of the tallest buildings um, so it cost a little over um, $600 million dollars to build um, and what I'm wondering here is it's got 2,250,000 square feet 73 elevators. Boy, that's a lot of elevators. (laughs) Um, Now, I'm wondering, what I'm wondering is how many people it it actually houses. Uh, Ah! It took 3,400 workers to build that building. Um, And that was about the time the Depression started. Excavation began in 1930 um, and continued through to the ribbon cutting on 1931. Cut the ribbon! Wow, that that thing went up fast. Well, it probably had a lot
1: of people. Again, they had a lot of people working
2: on it. Yeah, that's true. When you've got 1,400 people working on it. And so lesson number one from history is, is that you've got to throw a lot of bodies at it. If you're going to build something big, you've got to have a lot of bodies.
1: Well, I did that for Egypt. New uh,
2: you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I was, I was headed in the same direction. They had thousands <laughs> and thousands of people building those pyramids
3: yeah. to get
2: them built in the space of the lifetimes that they were built in. And right. a couple of those took two, three lifetimes, generations to build so you know, when we look at these things, if we look at building a space habitat, we can't do that with robotics. And anybody who thinks we can is 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 nuts. It
3: just doesn't
1: understand robotics, apparently. Well,
2: no, it's not about. I don't even think it's about understanding robotics. It's more about understanding the physics of building a building. And this is why I I wonder. Where are the plans? Where are the blueprints that lay out the order of construction? How would it have to go? We see sketches and we see drawings of partial construction, but we don't don't get a feeling of what the steps would be involved in doing that. And I think this is what is missing today. This is why we cannot uh, get the public to embrace any kind of a space project. Yeah, they like the pictures that come back. And they make great wallpapers on our computers. But that's about as far as most people go. When you look at the vast numbers of people, and by vast numbers, I think, uh, if you took the membership of the the four major space advocacy programs, okay, Planetary Society, Space Society, Mars Society, Moon Society, take those four groups. And uh, based on what I was reading, uh, in in the various different rosters because I I had at one time had a membership in two of those groups, and that caught that that struck me as odd at the time when I realized I had a membership in two groups, until I realized that a lot of the space advocates have memberships in all four. Sure. So that it's if you combine like do anything. Yeah. So so that if you combine the membership numbers and then split out the duplicates. Right. We're not looking at a large number of people who are actively involved in the space well, advocacy groups.
3: I, I don't think they're actively involved.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, when you look at the Planetary Society, they actually have projects that they uh, not only do, that they actually do. They've got launches that they participate They had a solar sail a couple of years ago that, while it didn't succeed, they ran into some problems. They at least put money down and actually did something physical. But how
1: many people actually worked on this, in this particular project?
2: Uh, well, you had to have engineers, you had to have manufacturers, so there's 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 a solid infrastructure of work to be done there. Okay. Most of that took money, but you had contracts in place.
3: Right. Now
2: right. I give Mars, I give the Mars Society some credit too, because they've got I think at last count I two or maybe three locations. Uh, one in Canada, I know of, and one in uh, southern Utah, where they actually have built a habitat site, an analog station that is intended to simulate Mars. So they're actively doing something. Right. Now, the Moon Society, the only thing I know that they've done is, is a couple of people got together and built a model space power station. Um but that has pretty much, as far as I can tell, fallen by the wayside. There's been no further progress on that in the last five years that I can recall. Um, I know a call was put out for a model or a kit, and I haven't seen anything result of that. Now, the um, that, so that was the Mars Society, the Planetary Society are the leaders. Then you've got the Moon Society, which hasn't put anything out, so they're not really doing much. Uh, and lastly. Um, What's the other organization that I mentioned? I mentioned Mars Society, Planetary Society, oh, National Space Society. Now, the National Space Society does a lot of political action stuff. Now, they're not necessarily a productivity group. They're about lobbying in Congress. So Apparently they're,
1: it's not working.
2: Which isn't working. And, and I think that's, that's a lost cause. I, I do not believe that Congress is going to fund NASA beyond the level that it's at now unless... Um, something major changes. And by major changes, I mean a whole new direction for NASA that it's not going now. And it's going to have to be something political. Mm -hmm. We've got too many domestic problems as well as overseas problems. Uh, Congress isn't going to give NASA any more money. It's just not going to happen. Um, We haven't received what we expected from NASA, whether realistic or not. And as such, the taxpayers are not going to support further funding advancements. So these are some of the issues that we face. But I think one of the very first and foremost things that needs to happen soon, and I give um, Buzz Aldrin some credit. Several years ago, he made uh, a couple of uh, efforts to start a space raffle for different prizes in order to engender some publicity and those kind of fell flat i'm not sure why but they didn't really get anything done and the last couple of years he released a new book uh, a vision for settlement to mars but again even his book like the books from our other authors o'neill and heppenheimer and even dr zubrin do not give us any nitty-gritty even uh, uh Even a project plan that says, "Okay, on this date from from first launch, we need to have this going, and we need to anticipate these problems," Um, and maybe he's got this somewhere and just hasn't released it. But there are issues when most of these programs are talking about a base mentality. When you look at the projects, um, when you look at all of these projects as a group, and you get into the details of uh, not only NASA's programs that they have had over the many years. You look at Buzz Aldrin's. You look at uh, Robert Zubrin's. Zubrin's. Dr. Zubrin's program, however, at least can be called a settlement. Everything else from NASA and the astronauts and the engineers is always talked about as a base. Something that astronauts would go, spend a couple of two, maybe even three weeks at, and then turn around and come home with an average time between missions of as much as a year to two years. Now, that's NASA's history. That's what NASA does. When you look at the Apollo program as a function of history, that's how it works. And as I wrap up, I want to wrap up on this point that we need to do something different. We need to do something that looks at it from a settlement point of view, from the point of view of what the team on the Mayflower, what the team that settled Jamestown, of the people who came over to the New World, of the people who went to Australia as free citizens. They weren't coming home. They were making a new home. And if we don't look at space settlement from the perspective of a one-way trip so that when we arrive on that new shore, we are going to solve the problems on site by the boots on the ground so that the next wave that arrives gets it a little bit easier and they can solve the next set of problems so that we can move forward as they did on the New World, as they did in Australia And to a large degree, as they did on the polar stations, when they finally decided to set up a permanent space, living space, where you've got to have food, water, and air, and heat, until we set up permanently stationed facilities, where people are there the whole time. We cannot solve the lessons and the challenges of day-to-day living in that new environment. We okay. cannot face the challenges of lower gravity, radiation, and all the challenges of living and working in those environments. And this is what we need to be looking at in the future.
1: Got a comment from pigment of your imagination. We need a paradigm shift.
2: Exactly. Absolutely. And as I continue forward with the new space show. We are going to be talking about a potential paradigm shift that I believe may have some answers for us. So stay tuned, folks. We're about ready to close off for the night. We hope you'll join us next week for the next space with Alan Joe, right here on Blog Talk.
1: It will be July 6th.
2: July 6th, our next show, Sunday night. 7 p.m.
1: Same bat channel, same bat station.
2: Same space time, same space station.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Good night, folks. Glad to have you with us. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you, Al.
1: This is Patty Holstrand. This is KWAD Radio, and we are signing out for the day. You guys have an awesome weekend or awesome week. Remember that it's Fourth of July coming at the end of this week. Well, we all look forward to that. We well, always love to uh, remember our nation's uh, special events, and uh, that is definitely one of them. So go out and have some fun with the family. I know I will. This is KWD Radio signing out for the day.